Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is June the 29th of 2016, and tonight, our guest is Dr. Susan Sered, who is the author of Can't Catch a Break, which talks about homeless women, addiction, the medicalization of deviance. It's the sociological view. It's a topic that's of great interest to me. We're going to, we'll get to that in just a second. I'm going to do a little short blurb here for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest is here with us right now. I'm going to bring her on. Um, hopefully. I'm going to recall her because this, um, my button's not working. I'm going to hang up and call her again, so, or just call her again. Oh, this is very problematic. Everything stopped working. Now, just hang on one second, and we should be with you. Okay. One second here. Okay, because I'm dialing now. Uh, Bear with me, people. We get there. 332... Okay, we're dialing out. I think we're working now. Hello, Kenneth. Hello. Okay, we're working now. We are <laughs> we are good. on the air. Don't That's you great. love live radio? Don't you? It's just <laughs> like the good old days with uh, Jack know. Benny. <laughs> Everything that can go wrong well, but we are but I, broadcasting I, live. Go ahead. But at least we're not we're not we're not um, getting into trouble from our sponsors for having dead air time. That's, that's <laughs> no, lucky good. lucky strike. Lucky strike <laughs> is not going to cancel our uh, contract for this. Uh so your book is called Can't Catch a Break. It's about uh homeless women and addiction and why did you decide to write this book? You know, it's kind of a long story, and I hope it will be of interest to the listeners to this podcast. This began almost 12, 15 years ago. I had done a study of Americans who don't have health insurance. And, you know, so bear with me. I will get to the the women who use drugs. So I had conducted research around the country interviewing American families that were scraping by without health insurance. This was in the pre-Obamacare era, and I traveled all around the country. Everyone I interviewed was, for the study was employed. I interviewed about 130, 140 people. So they were all working but had jobs that didn't give health insurance because they were part-time or they were temps or they worked in industries that tended not to give insurance. A lot of them were young adults. They were near retirement. and There were a million different reasons. Um, and when I interviewed people, I tried to understand how they manage their health problems without insurance. And it, it became clear to me that in most parts of the country, people were not managing their health problems. They were just <laughs> getting sicker. And a lot of them were self-medicating with alcohol or with over-the-counter drugs. I remember a man in in Idaho, uh, a former miner, who told me that, he he would take a handful of he says I take a handful of those Iron Man every day. He, he meant ibuprofen. He called them Iron Man, which I think maybe mm-hmm. was a good symbolic name for for it. But you know he took a, literally a handful of ibuprofen every day. 
a lot of alcohol, um, increasingly use of crystal meth for people to stay awake on their jobs. Um, mm-hmm. And as I stayed in touch with the people whom I'd initially met, I saw them sinking into a spiral in which their poor health was increasingly making it, making it difficult for them to keep their jobs. Once they lost their jobs, they certainly didn't have health insurance, and they didn't have money. So their health deteriorated mm-hmm. more. And they were sinking into what I was calling a death spiral, and I was watching families that, when I first met them, had homes, had cars, had what looked like middle-class lives over a period of years, really fall into a life of misery, with people losing their homes, becoming not just unemployed, but unemployable. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started to ask myself, what's next? I mean, are they going to be dead? Or, you know, Where are we sort of hiding these people? And I realized that a lot of people who fall into these sorts of miserable circumstances, especially if the use of alcohol or drugs becomes part of the way that they're managing their misery, which I just have to say is true for so many people. I met people who have had just teeth rotting out of their mouths and couldn't get dental care. Of course they were taking stuff to manage the pain. They couldn't mm-hmm, go to work mm-hmm. without that. They couldn't take care of their kids without that. So I started to realize that a lot of these people were sort of being stashed away in prisons and in homeless shelters. So that's how I mm-hmm. got the idea of trying to understand the experiences, and I decided to focus on women. And I did the study in Massachusetts. That's where I work and live, so it's just convenient. Um, and I decided to do something a little different than what's usually done. I did not study women in prison or a homeless shelter. I studied a group of women who had been in prison the previous year. I recruited women in a whole bunch of different programs and organizations and in drop-in places and soup kitchens. So any woman who had been incarcerated in the previous year could join the study. And I followed the same women for eight years. I mean, I'm still following them. It's it's now been eight years. So I've seen the same women cycle through jail and halfway houses and rehab and battered women's shelters, getting an apartment and then being on the streets and then a homeless shelter, then into detox, then back into jail, um, then maybe living with a boyfriend, um, then being on the streets and then being in a homeless shelter. So sort of this this um, awful cycle. And it helped me understand that a lot of the studies that I was reading were studying people at one point in that cycle. So they were studying people mm-hmm. in a, a rehab program. And, mm-hmm. wow, 80% of the people successfully completed the rehab program. Well, the women that mm-hmm. I've known now for eight years, most of them have successfully completed a dozen rehab programs. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but clearly it didn't work. I mean, it looks like it worked because they completed the program. But, you know, they're really still cycling through the same misery over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is a topic which is kind of close to me, although I'm not a woman. I was homeless for two years. Um, I've been through all this crap. I've not had health insurance didn't have health insurance for a period of many years. Mm-hmm. I do now. Um, where where, where um, did you live or where do you live now? What state? Um, I live or in various? New York City. I live in New York City. I'm renting uh, a room here. I'm not mm-hmm. very high income right now, but uh, mm-hmm. New York City has some advantages. A lot of advantages. Um, yeah, well, you know, if, you, if you're a native English speaker and you're willing to do menial work, um, guess what? You can find employment a lot easier here than you can in Minneapolis. <laughs> I think <laughs> that there's another before. issue that is true for New York and is even more true for Boston. We did a, I, I, the, the research that I'm describing I did together with a colleague at my university at Suffolk University. Her name is Maureen Norton Hawk. And we did a pilot study before we began working with um, – the women that we then followed for eight years. And one of the questions that we asked 65 women who had just gotten out of prison, they were all in a like a parole-supervised housing facility. And we asked 65 women, has it ever happened 
that you were sick but couldn't go to the doctor because you couldn't afford it or you couldn't get there or because doctors don't want to take patients like you. And I was shocked. All 65 women said that never happened to them. And I know for a fact from the research I did with uninsured families that in most other parts of the country that would happen all the time. So this is kind of a Massachusetts quirk, and I think it's also a quirk of New York and then a couple other of the the New England states and maybe a couple other states on the West Coast, that people really can access health care, even if they're uninsured, whereas in most of the country, no insurance, no care, and you could be sick as a dog, you could have alcohol poisoning, you could, you know, have... Serious things wrong with you, hepatitis C, <coughs> and you're not going to get care. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing I wanted to uh, talk about a little bit, um, which you talk about too, which is um, once you're homeless, well, first of all, there are all kinds of forces out there that are pushing people into homelessness, you know, um, and that's a whole other topic we can come back to. But once you are there, it is almost impossible to get out. I mean, it took me two years to get out, and I have I had a master's degree, and I was a Mensa member. Um, so you know, it's you know, and yeah. you talk about this a lot in the book that we want to blame people; it's their fault that they're homeless, and all you need to do is uh, do some welfare reform, which Clinton did, give people a little kick in the ass, and then they, they will all go to work and be productive citizens, but nobody will hire you. Yeah, yeah that's, that is really true. Um, what I'm seeing in the Boston area and what I'm hearing from um, people who work as advocates in, you know, with homeless communities, that it's about 10 years. That's about how long it takes to get into stable housing. And mm-hmm. I mean the the hoops that you need to jump through. I mean a lot of them are just crazy that no one can do, jump through these hoops. But some of it you jump through and it doesn't even really make any difference. So you know one of the really awful things that I think is very harmful to women and children in particular is that to even get into the system, you have to prove that you were actually homeless. And you know, I think that if you look at people who are sleeping on the streets, you tend to see a lot more men than women sleeping in the streets. The men's shelters have a lot more beds than the women's shelters. There's a lot mm-hmm, of reasons mm-hmm. for that. But one of the reasons is that women more than men um, couch surf. Women have, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. one, women not, that's not true for every single woman or every single man. Women on average have stronger social networks and more mm-hmm. possibilities of sort of staying with a friend here, staying with a cousin there, staying with a boyfriend here. And that doesn't count as homelessness. So the women mm-hmm. can't get into the system. And then for many of the women that I know, it's a hard decision to make because you can't get any services until you get into the system. But being homeless is uh, enough justification for the courts to take your children away as an unfit mother. So Mm -hmm. many women don't want to approach the agencies that would help them with housing out of fear that they're going to lose their kids. Mm -hmm. So that's a real real Mm catch-22. I want to ask you a little bit about the uh, sociological slant on this because that's your expertise. And... uh, I was just reading in your book a little bit about, uh, you know, people almost treat uh, homelessness like it's a disease, but they definitely want to blame the victim and not change the social institutions. Mm. I I agree with you. I, you know, I think that you've picked out an important piece of the book. And, um, you know, I don't want to take us too far off topic, but Go I think ahead. that it's, it's over the past... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the fun thing about an hour long long podcast. Um, we can really explore an issue. So I think that over the past couple of years, we've been moving towards what I see is almost sort of a knee jerk idea that 
we can explain a lot of social problems and we can sort of avoid confronting social problems by labeling all kinds of people as mentally ill. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that as mass incarceration has become an international embarrassment for the United States, having the highest incarceration rates in the world, and incarceration rates that have just become untenable, the states can't support them anymore, what's been the knee-jerk reaction? The knee-jerk reaction has not been, or the reaction has not been, this is a human rights abuse. And lots of people were locked up for no reason, or they were locked up inappropriately, or they were locked up far too long for minor infractions of the law, or they were locked up because whatever they did was not a big deal, but because of the color of their skin made it into a big deal. We're not acknowledging this human rights abuse. We're instead coming up with this new mantra, which is all these people in the jails with the drug problems, they're not really criminals. They're mentally ill. They need treatment. So mm-hmm. we're sort of moving, in, in a, I think, in a very knee-jerk way towards calling a lot of things right now mental illness. I think that with housing, this has a longer history. And you know, I can't tell you how many people I hear say, based on zero facts, zero statistics, and zero information, this statement, which I'm sure you'll recognize, is a New Yorker. And that is, when did all this homeless problem start in New York? When did you start seeing all these homeless people on the streets? Well, when the state mental hospitals closed down because of deinstitutionalization. And so all these people were just turned out onto the streets, and now there's all these crazy people on the streets, and that's the homeless problem. This is just mm-hmm. untrue. This is just not backed mm-hmm. by facts. Anyone who does work around homelessness knows that this is just a myth that was invented um, to some extent to not um, fund community mental health centers, but I think on a much larger level in order to not address a real housing crisis. Homelessness started to become a visible problem, you know, in the past half century, you know, the sort of the post-depression wave of homelessness not when the mental hospitals closed. It was when housing prices went up. Mm. Most people who are homeless are not mentally ill. Some people are. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many people who were not mentally ill and they became homeless, but a couple years of living on the streets has made them mentally ill. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think that medicalizing homelessness draws attention away from the fact that we have a real housing problem. Housing prices have gone up, both for rental housing and for purchasing housing. And salaries have not just stayed on a plateau. Salaries have gone down. Real wages Mm -hmm. for most Americans are lower than they were 30 years ago, but housing prices are higher. So people Mm -hmm. can't afford housing. So, yes, there's homelessness. But if we want to um, allow this status quo in which you know, a small number of landowners and landlords become, you know, millionaires, billionaires, zillionaires, then we're not going to call the problem an economic problem. We're going to say it's a mental health problem of these screwed up, you know, psychos who are homeless, and that's why they're homeless. Because, I mean, I even hear, this. oh, a lot of these homeless people, they want to live on the streets. I can't tell you how often I hear that. We try to get them into shelters, but they want to live on the streets. I mean, I know a number of people who choose to be on the streets instead of in shelters, and I know exactly why they do it. It's mm-hmm. because the shelters are dangerous. They actually are physically safer on the streets. The shelters are so overcrowded that the beds are an inch or two apart from each other, triple-decker beds, and people get sick. I mean, they're just breathing in each other's faces all night. It's unhealthy staying in the shelters. Um Many of the shelters don't have enough toilets, and you have to be out of the shelter at a certain time. It's usually 7.38 in the morning. So people who are less um, aggressive don't can't get to the toilet. So, yeah, they get sick. And um, is that people are so crazy they're choosing to be on the streets instead of in the shelter? No. I think they're making a pretty difficult decision that, wow, you know, the streets are horrible, but the shelters are worse. 
<laughs> well, shelters are pretty awful. Um, you know, and one of the things um, I know from Minneapolis, um, for example, I think it was a Salvation Army shelter. Well, most of the shelters were the same anyway, but if you if you tested positive for alcohol, uh, you know, if you had a couple drinks before you came home and somebody smelled it on your breath and they gave you breathalyzer, um, you know, it could be January 40 below and you're out for 30 days. Yeah. Uh, you drank. You had a drink of alcohol. You had a drink of alcohol. Horrors of yeah. horrors. Yeah. Um, so lots of people would get put out in the winter. You know, I fortunately didn't go through that system. Um, I was in uh, I was in St. Anthony residence, uh, which is wet housing, which is not properly run wet housing. There's a really good one in Seattle, but the one in Minneapolis they don't do correctly. Um, Certainly when I was there, the, the, well, there were a couple staff members that were rotten and abused the clients. Most of the staff members were actually decent people, but, all, you know, a couple of rotten people. And, you know, the, they wanted, uh, you know, some of the things, they said, if you start working, you have to turn over your whole paycheck to us. You can't save up for, uh, rent money to move out. Um, the only way that you can, if you want to do that, you have to transfer to our recovery facility, our Christian recovery facility, and do the 12-step program. And, you know, um, that's yeah. the main reason I was homeless was I refused to go to AA because it violates my religious beliefs. And I was told, well, if you don't go to AA, we'll fire you. And I said, yeah, I can't go. They drive me to drink with all that crazy-ass religion. And you're fired. So, mm -hmm. you know, there is no freedom of religion for the poor. Did you Did you take this to court, by the way? Um, I did not take it to court. Actually, I finally found out about some options, and I tried to go to the uh, the EEOC, the, the the whatever. They said that I had missed the deadline by three days. I don't know if it's true or not, but I don't don't think they wanted to fight AA as a religion. Because but, something uh, that concerns, yeah, something that concerns me very much is how heavily the courts and the prisons. Um, require people to go to 12-step meetings, and it is a religion. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a sociologist of religion. I, I'm an expert, and I will attest to that. This is a religion. And um, people who are involved in it can say from here to doomsday, it's not a religion, it's a spirituality. <laughs> I, say, what, mm -hmm. say whatever you want to say, but it's a religion. I mean, it looks, it fits all the the criteria of what, scholars use when we talk about a religion. So I think there's real issues now, especially in the drug courts, um, which mm -hmm. a lot of people see as a more benign alternative to prison, and it probably is in many ways. But in the drug courts, the judges have absolute power to tell people to do whatever the judge wants them to do. And typically the judges tell people they have to go to 12-step meetings. And... Um, mm. You know, I think the religion issue is really significant in the 12-step meetings. Um, I would say even further than that, you know, all the women that I've worked with have been sexually abused, have been physically abused. They've been abused by relatives when they were kids. They've been abused by correction officers, police officers, by boyfriends, by husbands, um, by men on the street. And then they're told they have to turn themselves over to a higher power. That's great. I mean, I don't think that's the message that these women need to hear. They've been turned over to enough higher powers throughout their lives. They need to take their own power back. So I think it's horrible to be sending women in these situations to 12-step groups, but a lot of times they have to go and they have to get a paper signed that they were there to show it to the judge. Well, you know, if you wanted a formula to uh, build a cult, uh, you couldn't have a better one than telling people, unless you say you're powerless, you'll die. And that's the yeah. first step. And the first thing that you're told in the A, you have to do the first step or you will die a horrible death. And yeah. your first step is to say you are powerless. You know, yeah. uh, if, and then if you say, I don't believe in God, it's like, oh, make AA your God. They would like mm -hmm. to be God. Well, they are God to their, you know, there's no, I've never heard an AA member question the idea that AA could be God. Um, because it's it's a complete su subjugation of the human being to the institution. Um, you know, uh, 
I've looked at other religions like the Hare Krishnas, and you know they're a lot laxer, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that in terms of it being a very successful cult, I think the last step isn't it to um, commit yourself to spreading the wisdom, bring in so, new members. Yeah, yeah, it's a very effective cult, and you know. I, I can't blame AA for this. I have to blame our politicians for this. But prisons and social service agencies are so underfunded, there's no money for programming, and AA is free, and volunteers offer to come in. And mm-hmm. that's all that's going That's That's the only program there is. So, yeah, Gee, people Well, can. sort of. Sort of, but not actually. Um, you know, I don't know if you know about Smart Recovery, Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard a little bit about it. Why don't you tell me more? Well, SMART is also free. Um, they're abstinence-based. Um, and they're starting to get a little traction uh, now. They uh, they think they have about 1,000 meetings in the U.S., or it might be 1,000 mm-hmm. worldwide. Anyway, I remember them hitting the 1,000 meeting mark uh, recently. Um, I mean, it's totally secular. It's based on cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, based on not calling yourself bad names. They don't want you to call yourself an alcoholic because that will keep you stuck there forever. It's also based on, you know, getting your shit together and being able to move on and get a life, you know. And are, uh, they, in the, are they in the prisons? Are they coming in and volunteering um, in the prisons? Yeah. yeah, actually they have a pretty big prison program. Um, I think it's called Inside Out or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's um, great. I'm, I'm not a real expert on SMART, uh, but uh, you should definitely check it out a little more. But yeah. judges don't judges don't think about it. Judges, first of all, they don't know about it, mm-hmm. and they don't want to send people there. Well, we know AA works because we have testimonial evidence. Yeah. We have anecdote. Yeah. Anecdote is proof. <laughs> <laughs> yes, stories. I'm not... Like I'm, I'm, I'm someone who collects stories, but I'm saying it sarcastically. You know, stories are so much more scientific than actual statistics. So, um, so one of the things that I've seen that is interesting to me in the studies that are done of of um, twelve step, I, I've I've read more of the Narcotics Anonymous literature than the Alcoholics mm-hmm. Anonymous literature, but um, I've read both. It mm-hmm. seems to me that that overwhelmingly. The studies confuse correlation with causation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they say people who have continued coming to the meetings have high rates of abstinence. Yeah. They're coming to meetings and they're abstinent. One doesn't necessarily cause the other. People who are drinking or using drugs don't come to the meetings. Well, of course not. I mean, if you uh, drink or use drugs and you try to go to one of those meetings, you will be totally shamed. And, you know, you have to get down on your knees and say, I'm back to day one. I've lost everything. I've lost all my time. Um, I'm back to zero. Um, And if you don't, uh, you know, totally beat the shit out of yourself, you will be completely ostracized by the group because time is everything. If somebody drinks, they're going to stop going to AA, obviously. Yeah. yeah, so it, it is meaningless to look at, you know, the rates of people who are drinking and not drinking in in AA. It's 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 a very a very silly thing to do. Um, and what's but that's what really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, what's really interesting is um, the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse actually does some very good studies, uh, some very good epidemiological studies. And, uh, you know, they've done the National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, uh, three waves of it now. And Mm -hmm. what they found out is um, over 90% of people with alcohol dependence, with alcoholism, as they like to say in the popular press, uh, Mm -hmm. recover. And uh, less than 10% of those go to AA, uh, you know, and, you know, less than 15% do AA or some sort of treatment. Almost everybody recovers on their own. You know, to so let me try ask you a and question. Pee. Yeah, you're you're mm-hmm. using the word recover. I, mm-hmm. I I try not to use that word because I think it's such an ideological word. Um, mm-hmm. you, you mean they stop drinking or they stop drinking to excess? Uh, exactly. Um, the, well, with Nisark, uh, the definition for remission 
um, which is the word that they used uh, typically, is, uh, you know, they no longer meet DSM criteria. Mm -hmm. So they're either drinking less, they're having fewer problems, or they quit. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at alcohol, they found out that half of people who recovered, I'm going to use the word again, uh, half quit and half cut back to non-problematic levels. So... Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You know, one of the things that we're seeing um, with drug users, and I'm absolutely seeing it with the women that I follow intensively, but it's it's also in the literature, that for the most part people age out of mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. illegal drug use. By their 40s, they're done. Late Middle mm -hmm. 40s, they're pretty much done. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm seeing this in the women that I know. And yeah. So, yeah, that was a really of, interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I'm so going to interrupt you for a second. You know, a lot of times people will attribute the last program they were in to having been the one that turned their lives around. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I don't. I think it's, you know, it's aging out. Anyway, I interrupted you as well. Uh, yeah, going back to the same study, uh, NISARC, um, so they found out with alcohol dependence the half-life was 14 years after 14 years after the initiation of alcohol dependence half of the people had recovered had remitted I'll say remitted and uh, what was interesting with drug users it was much quicker um, with marijuana it was about six years cocaine about five years and prescription drugs too after about five years half of the people with dependence had remitted and most of them didn't get treatment most of them just said I don't like this anymore. Um, I yeah. don't care if it's all hard work to change. I'm going to change. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it stops being fun. It's tiring. Too much work to go chasing after the drugs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I hadn't seen this study. I'm, I'm surprised at how short these half-lives are. I would have expected them to be longer. That's really very encouraging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, you you see a population if you're with if you look at homeless people, if you look at people mm -hmm. who are institutionalized, if you look at people in treatment in clinical settings. Guess what? You have the most severe group, the most yeah. severe groups, and you actually have much longer courses. Uh, but when you this is a study that was the general public, so this yeah. covered everybody, and uh, so the people that don't get institutionalized. Uh, tend to get better quicker. Uh, my advice is if you have an addiction, stay the fuck out of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I mean, I, I would feel the same thing. And actually right now it's becoming an even more acute issue um, because, you know, everyone's here talking about this sudden epidemic of opioid-related deaths. And the mm -hmm. word on the street that I hear is that a lot of this is being driven by more people being brought into detox, and mm -hmm. um, then they come out and their tolerance has dropped and they OD and they mm -hmm. die. Um, mm -hmm. But well, I think mm -hmm. people are scared. They don't know what else to do. You know, here's a family member, a friend, and what are they going to do? They So they bring them to treatment. Well, I wrote an article on this because there actually was some research in Great Britain on the 28-day treatment uh, and the people that successfully completed the 28-day abstinence-based treatment that were abstinent for the full 28 days, uh, when they graduated, their uh, overdose death rate was about 30 times higher than people that continued to use uh, heroin on the street or people that failed to complete right. the program. Oh, um, my God. Can you send the yeah, study is, to me, or can you post it on your website? It's a really important study. I will send you the link to my article. Um, great. Yeah, I, great. We're, we're guessing a little bit from, because the study in Great Britain had, I think it was 80 subjects, or maybe 160, maybe it was 80 in mm. each group. It wasn't as big as you would like, but nobody else has studied it at all. Nobody, mm -hmm. yeah. nobody wants to touch the harmful aspects of treatment. Nobody wants to touch death after treatment in the U.S. They're, they're looking at it in Europe. The other thing that we know is the methadone reduces death rates by 75%. And mm -hmm. 
and this has been proven in study after study, particularly in Australia and Europe, where they actually study these things properly. Because in the U.S., uh, they don't care. They don't. Oh, they care. Let's do some brain scans. Look, pretty pictures of brains. This is science. This man's brain acts differently than that man's brain. Therefore, this man's brain is diseased. That man's brain is not. Well, wait a minute. How do you know which one is diseased? All you yeah. did was show a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the brain imaging is completely out of control. I, I've uh, There were a couple headlines a couple years ago that brain imaging is going to cure pro- poverty, that they found like a place in people's brains that show poverty. I Yeah, I've, I wrote some harsh responses to that. Um, but here would be my question. The studies that come from Europe and that come from Australia that are showing that methadone substantially lowers death rates, I don't mm-hmm. know to what extent they're applicable in the United States because the whole system around um, giving methadone is such a mess here right now. Oh, it's horrible. So I mean, I, a couple of the women in, who I've been following for seven years are, are um on the methadone clinic now, or they have been in the past. And what I'm seeing is a whole culture around the methadone clinic, that people pretty much um, don't have jobs. They come to the clinic every day, and then they're required to participate in all kinds of groups. So the clinic is sort of their social group. And right outside the clinic, you know, two Buildings away is a Dunkin' Donuts, and everyone goes over to Dunkin' Donuts after they're finished at the clinic, and everybody exchanges the other prescription and non-prescription medication that they have. So we're actually seeing a lot of um, mortality right now in Boston from people with taking methadone and then topping it off with other stuff, um, with um, mm-hmm. the you know with the benzodiazepines or with alcohol. Um, some mm-hmm. other things, but I don't even want to say what they are because I don't want any potential listener to get some bad idea. Um, well, those so two are the worst. Two what? I mean, those two are those two are the worst. Those are the deadliest yeah. combinations with opioids, is alcohol and benzos, and they're the most popular. <laughs> well, there's a couple others that are becoming popular. That those are the ones I didn't want to mention. I figured these two everybody knows about, but I am. Um, I just wonder whether in the other countries where methadone is more widespread, it's less stigmatized, whether they've come up with a better system of administering it that's not creating this kind of methadone culture that really is pretty toxic. Well, it is totally different. And in fact, if you look at U.S. methadone clinics, uh, there's a huge variation among them because the federal regulations uh, don't stipulate most of these things. I mean, the federal regulations on methadone clinics don't say you have to make your people go to groups. That's the owner of the clinic that decided that. I want them to go to AA. I want them to go to NA. Well, if you're on methadone and you go to NA, what do they say? They say, you're not clean and you're not allowed to talk in the meeting until you quit your methadone, um, which is actually an official written policy at NA. Yeah, so that's why some of the clinics have their own meetings in the clinic, so that because they, they they know that they know that that's a problem, so they have their own meetings that are not ones that say that you can't um, be on methadone and that being on methadone does not count as abstinence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you look if you look at Switzerland, I, I looked at Switzerland in a little bit of depth. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, methadone is free. Uh, uh, like half of people in the U.S. actually have to pay for their methadone, and they can't mm-hmm. afford it and their insurance won't cover it, or Medicaid mm-hmm. won't cover it in the state that they live in, because mm-hmm. Medicaid is different state to state. Uh, people yeah. can't afford methadone, and then they tell them, oh, if you can afford heroin, yeah, but I was stealing to afford heroin. You want me to steal to <laughs> afford methadone? What is the point? Uh, in Switzerland, the methadone is free. It's mm-hmm. covered by everyone's health insurance, which is the same for everyone, there's no Obamacare, yeah. none of this psychotic, crazy thing with yeah. different insurance for every different pe- person. Yeah. Everyone has the exact same insurance. Yep. Everyone has methadone covered, um, so it's free. Uh, you can you have psychotherapy available if you want it. You don't have mm-hmm. to do psychotherapy to get your methadone. And I think they're pretty liberal on take-homes. I mean, once you're stabilized 
and methadone does require an induction period of stabilization. Yeah. I can understand why they want yeah. you to come every day for the first 30 days. Mm-hmm. But once you're stabilized on methadone, uh, yeah. you know, there's no reason not to have take-homes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the final thing in uh, Switzerland is if you don't do well on methadone, they will give you the option of getting heroin maintenance. Uh, you can get free heroin from the government, shoot up under uh, medically supervised uh, conditions, and nobody's dying of overdose in Switzerland anymore. And um, 75% of heroin users in Switzerland are in treatment. 92% are in methadone. 6% are in heroin-assisted. Most people like methadone better because it makes them function better. Um, and 2% and are in many, something else. How many of them eventually taper down and taper off the methadone? I've not seen any statistics about the the tapering off methadone. Uh, Switzerland really doesn't care if you're on methadone or not. They'll hire you anyway because you're as normal as anybody else in the world. What we did see a lot from the heroin-assisted treatment was a lot of people got into the heroin-assisted treatment, got stabilized, got housed and eventually decided to switch to methadone because, hey, mm-hmm. shooting up heroin four times a day at the clinic is not letting me get a job, and I want yeah. to be normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I think that I would, you know, want to at least think about some other concerns. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sort of suspicious enough of biomedicine and the pharmaceutical industry and, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industrial complex that I, I don't love the idea of putting people onto a pharmaceutical agent forever. And so that's why I am interested in, in tapering off, because if they have to be on it forever, that's really, I think, uncritically buying into the idea that this is an incurable disease, that there's mm-hmm. something wrong with your brain, you have a brain disease. And I'm just not convinced that that's true, and I think the evidence that you brought earlier also shows that that's not, that's not accurate. I mean, there may be some small number of people for whom that there's some actual thing wrong with their brain. But I think that most people who are dependent on drugs probably can stop eventually um, and don't need to be on methadone for 40 years. Um, I would agree with you. I think most people um, on methadone will uh, eventually taper off when they're ready. And, you know, it might be five years. It might be ten years on methadone. And there's no reason why anybody in the world should put a rush on it. There's also no reason why anybody should tell them you have a disease and you have to take the medication for the rest of your life because that's not true either. They should say, this is here for you for as long as you need it until you're ready you know, to start stepping down. So I'm I'm looking and not finding good studies that are um, really following sort of successful protocols for for tapering off. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm gonna to I'm trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to get some context in Switzerland. I think I can get some context uh, because. Um, as it is, I have to read what's on the internet in German, and the Swiss don't publish nearly enough. I think they like they don't want it, the rest of the world looking at them for some reason. Well, that's interesting. So although there is a there is certain really good data from Switzerland online. Mm-hmm. Um I'm gonna try and get a hold of somebody in the health department and see if they track some of some more of these numbers and if I can get might, some of the yeah. stuff that they've published uh in books yeah. and on paper that's not that they haven't published online. And you know there may be studies from England um yeah, at least they're in English. Mm-hmm. Australia's oh, really a good source, too. Australia's mm-hmm. got great methadone programs. Mm-hmm. I, I would be interested to look to see, uh, yeah, what they've done uh, to measure people, to follow people up in uh, Australia on the tapering down. So like, I guess my, course, my, yeah, my inclination is to you know sort of assume that any drug, legal or illegal, you know, it it affects your body, and we don't necessarily know in what are all the ways in which it affects one's body, and just mm-hmm. like you know, we we would, I I you know, that's that's what I would think that we would try to to not to not further medicalize 
I mean, it's sort of the root of the problem is a broad cultural idea that all problems can be fixed by medicine. Oh, I'm unemployed, mm-hmm. I'm miserable, I'll have a drink, I'll, you know, get high with my friends. Why would we think that more medicine is going to then fix the problem that was caused by medicating social problems? Um, okay, I'm, uh, I'm a... I'm a little ambivalent here, so, so I'm, I'm thinking two things okay. at the same time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because, first of all, I think people have a right to use any drugs they damn please. Um, you should be able to buy heroin if you want to get high on heroin. You should be able to buy marijuana. You should be able to buy any drug you want. Uh, you should be well-informed about what you're doing, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, if somebody's going to start doing drugs, you know, I would say heroin is not your first choice. There's several disadvantages to it. Mm-hmm. Um, weed is uh, definitely better for most people. I can't smoke it. It makes me depressed. So I've quit decades ago. That doesn't mean I don't recommend it to a lot of people as uh, less harmful than alcohol, uh, definitely uh, less harmful than opiates. Uh, and a lot of people do get off opiates by switching to marijuana. Yeah. And there are studies yeah. uh, about that uh, in Berkeley Mm-hmm. Um, where they studied the dispensaries, and people get off alcohol too by switching to weed, and you I know they become really much more functional. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You know, on some levels, I have the same long-term concern with that that I have with methadone. That you know, it seems that the optimal thing would be to not have to use some kind of substance to keep yourself from falling apart. But if I had to use a substance, I'd certainly vote for weed over. You know, over methadone for sure. <laughs> well, it's not ideal to be obliterated all the time. You know, it's not yeah. ideal to drink a quart of whiskey every day. Good Although point. in the U.S., you you have a right to do that, and you won't be yep. uh, put in jail simply for drinking a quart of whiskey every day. You know, if you don't go out and you know run naked in the streets or something else. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, it's not the or ideal way to use the subject. Yeah not the ideal way to use a substance. It's not even the most fun way because yeah. the more you drink, the less effect you have. If you don't mm-hmm. give yourself, you know, lots of time in between, you, you know, you get all this tolerance. It's not even fun. And it's with every drug, you know, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you use them all the time, they stop being fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, my understanding was that your focus is on harm reduction. So yes, absolutely. I started, so I started to, you know, as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, um, I started to just imagine what harm reduction would look like if we took gender issues really seriously. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think that as a broad statement, I would say what's good for women is good for men. Um, In so general, I, yeah. Yeah. So but I mean, there's the, specific so the, differences. So the kinds of suggestions that, you know, Kate, you know, I started to – to jot down for myself to make sure that I would remember to share with you during the podcast, I mean, are not limited to um, being relevant to women. But I think that mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of where I've started because of my work. So, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about the 47 women that we've been following for these eight years, and I've thought a lot about which of them have really been able to pull their lives together in a satisfying way. The answer is one. I <laughs> yeah it's that's it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I've been there. I've been through the whole shit hole process of all of it. It's really a yeah. mess. Yeah. One. Yeah, one out of 47. I would and 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 remember this is Massachusetts, so they've all been in every program you can think of. They've all mm-hmm. gotten and they've all spent far more time in therapeutic programs than in jails or prisons. Um and very few of them have been really homeless like sleeping on the streets or shelters for, you know, decades. Most of them have cycled in and out of having some kind of housing. So even with all of those caveats, one has really pulled her life together. Um, But I think that there are women who overall, they're not flourishing, but they're, they're, they're more than just surviving day to day, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, they're they're doing better than just surviving day to day. Maybe maybe they've graduated from surviving day to day to sort of scraping by. So mm-hmm. I I 
you know, really, I hadn't done this before, and I'm, I'm glad that you asked me to chat with you because it sort of pushed me into thinking about who are those women and what are the things that are making it possible for them to do more than just survive day to day. So here's kind of my list, and I know that when people talk about harm reduction, and I know this because I did a, a quick Google search before our conversation, they generally are talking about you know these sort of very drug-oriented things like needle exchange mm-hmm. programs and um, mm-hmm. safe injection rooms um, mm-hmm. and 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 um, methadone and um, suboxone. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that for the women that I know, I think that there's other issues that sort of reduce the harm a lot more. And mm-hmm. to me, number one is housing. Mm-hmm. For women, and I think that for most men, if you're not securely housed, you stand in harm's way. So mm-hmm. here's just one example. You had said a few minutes ago that most people don't get arrested for drinking, I don't know, I don't know if you said a quart or a gallon of whiskey. Um, well, there are plenty of people who get arrested for drinking a half a pint of whiskey. Those are homeless people mm-hmm. because they're mm-hmm. drinking Absolutely. in public. They're drinking yes. in public. So then they get arrested, so then they get thrown into jail. So then all of the harmful things that happen because of being in jail, like you know, losing contact with your kids, losing contact with your family, losing whatever social support that you have, being exposed to the infections that just pour through prisons. You know, a couple of years ago, everyone who was getting out of prison had MRSA, you know, some antibiotic-resistant mm-hmm. staph infection. A few years mm-hmm. before that, it was TB rates were soaring in prisons. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of harm. So I think that housing is the first thing that I would talk about. Um, but I mm-hmm. think that for women in particular, not having secure housing puts them in a situation where they have to do favors for men in mm-hmm. order to have some place to stay a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. I think that having to do favors for men puts women in harm's way. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the women that I know, unfortunately, have been um, beaten up. You know, They've had their teeth smashed in. Um, they've been raped. They've had pots of boiling spaghetti sauce thrown over their heads by men that they were staying with. So they were sort of Mm -hmm. already in the subordinate, inferior status in the household because it was the Mm -hmm. man's apartment. He was paying the rent. She was just there on his good graces. So, you know, as much as, yes, I think that, you know, needle exchange is really good and and safe um, injection rooms are really good, I think that for women, safe, secure housing that they could count on that would get them off the streets and um, out of the clutches of men who try to control them would be probably the most important harm reduction practice that we could um, be talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely, first I absolutely agree with you on that, and I want to say that there are some people who are very actively working on this, and there are some things that are established one of the things I want you to look at is the wet housing program in uh, yeah. Seattle, Washington. Um, I will. That's, being, it sounds like it's good, a good program. It's yeah. excellent. It's, uh, it's co-educational, so uh, there's men and women in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they, they can drink if they want to. What they mm-hmm. found is that once people were stably housed, they started drinking a lot less. Mm-hmm. Well, of course. I mean, if you're on the street, you buy a bottle of vodka, you got to drink the whole thing before you pass out, or otherwise somebody will steal it from you when you're drunk and passed mm-hmm. out. So, But mm-hmm. you know, they, they found uh, people drank less. Um, mm-hmm. I've talked to some of the residents on Skype. Um, it's a great program, and it is a harm reduction program. Uh, Dr. Susan Collins uh, mm-hmm who's been on the show before. Um, I've interviewed her several times. I, I know her pretty well. I met her at the harm reduction conferences too, but she's done uh, the research on it. She's been the lead researcher behind it. But this is the ideal of how to do housing for people who are, uh, well, this is focused with alcohol specifically. Uh, Dr. Sam Sembaris, T-S-E, Sembaris, uh, has also done a lot of research and work on 
harm reduction housing in the, over the past decade or so. So uh, definitely people are looking at it. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's huge and it's essential. And there's just not. I mean, I'm, I'm in many cities. There are small projects, it, but just the 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 scale is nowhere near big enough. And oh, absolutely. That's so. I you know I think, and so I I sort of always like to go back to that. And then I think again for women, and you know I I've learned this through working with women. I'm sure it's relevant to men as well. You know, when we think about harm reduction, I think we really have to think about how to help people get into situations in which um, they are going to be less inclined to engage in dangerous behavior. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you from the women whom I know, many of the women told me a story that went something like this. Yes, I was using, I'd been using since I was 18 years old, but, you know, I sort of had it under control. You know, there were times when it wasn't great, but I pretty much had it under control. I never used during my pregnancies. And I know so many women who say that with such pride. They did not Mm -hmm. use during Mm -hmm. their pregnancies. And um, then they went back to using after they had their babies. But, and I know that this is true because I've been in their apartments, but I always took care of my kids. They always had enough to eat. They were always dressed. They were always ready for school. I didn't neglect them. I didn't leave them alone and go out to meet my dealer. You know, I kept things under control. And then mm-hmm. at some point, the kids were taken away. Mm-hmm. Whether some complaint was made by a relative or somehow child services got involved, the woman lost her kids. And I'm quoting now, you know, the exact words of at least three women that I can think of just off the top of my head. My kids were gone and I was off and running. Nothing mattered mm-hmm. anymore. The kids were gone, and that's when things became really bad, and that's when what was really a manageable drug use turned into an out-of-control, really dangerous, um, mm. all-encompassing horror. So, mm-hmm. I think well, that, that brings us yeah. Uh, that brings us to another huge myth that's really heavily promoted by the government, by NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, by the ONBCP, the drugs are all non-medical drug use is drug abuse. Everyone who uses any illegal drug is a drug addict, and everybody that uses any illegal drug needs drug treatment because they're drug addicts. They have addictions, and they're horrible people, whereas if you actually look at the studies, um, the vast majority of people that use illegal drugs are not addicted and never become addicted. That is the exception to the rule. Um, Taking away people's kids because they use intoxicants is horrific, and they often get placed with foster families where they're they're worse off. Um, There's one story I remember reading not long ago. I mean, the kids were taken away because the parents were using marijuana, and the kid died in foster care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, one of the women in my study actually... um, her daughter was taken away because she she was a heroin user, but I mean she was a very under control heroin user. Lot. I, mean, I, I I was at her house. She always had food in her cabinets and her refrigerator, and it was really she was fine. She was functioning. Mm-hmm. You know, was she lots of heroin users are very under control and have their shit together. I know I know lots of heroin users. Yeah. Uh, so it's this is more bullshit that you know heroin one shot you're immediately addicted and your life is destroyed. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of a a panic mode around that. So I wanted to actually ask you a question, which is in the past couple of years, the panic that I'm hearing in the most kind of hysterical tone is around um, the benzos. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm hearing more and more about programs where people can be on methadone, that would be okay, mm-hmm. but they can't take benzos. So I'm not saying methadone and benzos together. I know that's a bad combination, but they mm-hmm, cannot mm-hmm. they they cannot take benzos. Um, I know that in the prisons in Massachusetts, women can't have benzos if they're not given in prison. Do you know what this is about? There just seems to be a terrible fear right now about benzos. I don't know. I really hadn't heard about this before. Uh, well, there's no basis in 
there's no basis in science, of course, because uh, benzos, well, they're like a less harmful force, uh, a less harmful form of alcohol. Uh, they do a lot less organ damage than alcohol. They do tend to be more addictive, but mm-hmm. big deal. So you get a physical dependence on something, so who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand, you know, why people would be all freaked out about benzos. So, I mean, where, where this sort of circles back to harm reduction is that for the women that I know, I think almost all of them would say that their biggest struggle in life is anxiety. I mean, there's a couple mm-hmm. who have severe chronic pain. There's a couple who have depression and bipolar. and But by far the most common concern is terrible anxiety. And no one will treat them with medicine for the anxiety anymore. It's just become, they won't do it. Their doctors won't give it to them. And so I know well, women that's... who are using heroin when, when they really want is benzos. Well, yeah, it's just crazy. You know, um, everything, our whole entire attitude around drugs and the physical dependence on drugs, because it doesn't matter if you're physically dependent on a drug. Um, You know, the only drug that really fucks you up badly for life when you're physically dependent on it is alcohol, because alcohol makes you so incoordinated. If you have to be drunk all day long, you can't hold a job, you can't drive a taxi, Um, most of the other drugs, um, you know, if you get a physical dependence on an opioid or benzo, um, mm-hmm. it actually doesn't stop you from working. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's interesting. Um, so do you have any other questions? Um, no, I think we've uh, covered the material. We just uh, finished our hour, too. So. Oh, we did. Okay. Okay. Uh, but we could go longer if you quickly. want to say anything. You, we could so, go a little longer if you have anything to say. So I guess, you know, sort of very tangentially related to harm reduction, I had said earlier that out of the 47 women, there's only one woman who really has a good life now. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I've given a lot of thought to how she's different from the other women in the project. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not just one thing. So mm-hmm. it's it's a, so. I'm going to just sort of give you a list of things. She is one of the very few women who was never sexually abused as a child. So there are other Mm -hmm. women who were not sexually abused. Most were. But she's one of the few who was not. Mm -hmm. She's one of the few who grew up in a real middle-class family. So in the Mm -hmm. U.S., we kind of use the word middle-class to mean anything from not homeless to a little bit less rich than Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the women in my study do say they came from middle-class families. They came from really marginal <coughs> working-class families. Like mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. their father was a janitor or something like that. So this one woman came from like a real middle-class family where both of her mm-hmm. parents had a college education. Um, no one else in her family was involved with the criminal justice system, no one else in her family had um, drinking or um, drug problems of any kind. Um, she was not someone who was just sort of miserable her whole life. She does not have any serious physical health problems. Almost all mm-hmm. the other women in the study have serious physical health problems. Very high rates of cancer, and then certainly high rates of hepatitis C, very high rates of arthritis a lot of times because of injuries from being beaten up. Um, So she had all those things going for her. She graduated high school. She's English-speaking. She does not have a heavy Boston accent, so she sounds middle class on the telephone. Um, Mm -hmm. She got involved with the wrong people, you know, sort of in high school and got in trouble and ended up in prison. And came out of prison, and her family was helpful to her. And her family made it possible for her to get situated in a way that she could get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the women either can't get jobs or the jobs they get are so crappy that they don't last. It's a lot of time, part-time at Dunkin' Donuts. But she got a job delivering for a supermarket. Her parents bought her a truck. Mm-hmm. 
so she had that going for her. So when I put that whole list of stuff together, no major physical illnesses, quite intelligent. A third of the women in the study were diagnosed with learning disabilities in elementary school. This woman wasn't. Mm-hmm. She's intelligent. She has good parents. She wasn't sexually abused. She's middle class. She's well-spoken. She had a high school diploma. She had all those things going for her. And she's the only mm-hmm. one who now has the life that she wants. She has a happy, good life that she's enjoying. And is, yeah, she's a mother and married to a great man, has great kids. And um, So I think of how many things she had to have going her way for her to break out of this death spiral that I described when we first began to talk, it's scary. Most people don't mm-hmm, have those mm-hmm. kinds of resources and those kinds of lucky breaks. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. That's that's what I wanted to share. Well, myself, uh, you know, when I finally uh, did uh, get a job, uh, well, I was almost while I was in that wet housing shelter in Minneapolis, um, if I had not had a guardian angel that agreed to put up a first and last month rent for me, yeah. um, I, I would have never gotten out of there because, as I said, they wanted to seize uh, your entire paycheck. Um, and, you know, the only way, I mean, the whole thing would have been screwed. I, I needed that. Plus, you know, it took me two years to get a job. Because nobody wants to hire you when you're uh, homeless and unemployed and you got a bad employment record and you've been fired and you're living in a shelter and all this other crap uh, don't have a telephone. Uh, yeah, that's a big one. That is a big one. So, yeah, well, I am very happy that your life is seems to have moved into a direction that you're happy with and that you're mm-hmm. doing this podcast. That's quite wonderful. And thank you for including yeah, me. Are, yeah, things are going well now. I'm finishing a PhD. Cool. That is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you for including me, and I, I wish you a, a good evening, a good week, a, a good life. Okay, thanks for being on the show. It's been a great show, and uh, we will see you next time I get one scheduled. I've been busy lately. I haven't been able to do it weekly, but... We'll get someone else on again soon and have another show for y'all. So thank you, everyone, and good night. Bye-bye.